This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. Hi, I'm Mike Bush. I'm Paul New. And I'm Colleen Sterling. Welcome to Ask the AMPs from AOPA. Ask the AMPs is where we try to address any and all maintenance questions that come our way. So if you have a question, you can reach us at podcasts at AOPA.org. And if you like the show, subscribe on Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to get on our email list for our monthly newsletter and um, weekly maintenance stories, you can pull out your phone and text the word SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777, and um, a little uh, email bot will ask you for your email address and put you on the list. That's text the word SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777. So should we talk about the weather? I heard they got snow in Tennessee. I saw a picture. We did. We got snow in Tennessee. It, you know, not that it's a big deal. It's kind of big for us. And we discovered that we actually have some snow plows but they only <laughs> they only plow <laughs> I know they only plow the interstates and the main state highways. So you can see a road that you can drive on, but you may not be able to get to there. Get there. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so is this winter weather the cause of your somewhat nasal sound today, Paul? Oh no, I I have the wonderful pleasure of uh, being infected with COVID. I found out yesterday Woo-hoo! morning. Yeehaw. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Vaccinated and everything. Just a, um, like a severe sinus attack with a little uh, lower back pain that's now gone away. I sound much worse than, well, I was going to say I sound worse than I look, but that may not be true. It's so nice that this is <laughs> a podcast. You have to take his word for it. <laughs> yeah, you have to take my word for it. For those so who haven't you're, seen you're me, you're doing this session uh, at home instead of at the shop. Uh, yes, I am quarantining, as is Helen. So we're out of the shop for the whole week, which is oh, Blake's that, probably happy about that. Uh, no, no, man, it's it's a real problem. But you know, it's for okay. Who? We're for <laughs> <laughs> really. Well, I am I am getting you know paperwork done. I'm catching up on emails and doing the pajama job thing. But uh, yeah, it's still there's things that you need to be physically there to do, like helping troubleshooting and that sort of thing. But it's okay. Blake does a great job, so not worried about it at all. I'm drinking uh, extra cups of coffee in the morning, and I don't uh, I don't set my alarm. I can get up, and whenever the, the notion hits me to wake up and go, I'm already early for work. 
That sounds like it could get habit forming. Paul. It could be. It could yeah, be first step towards retirement. <laughs> oh no, there's no Helen. Helen says I can retire, but I can't stay home, so I've got to work out something. Oh. You know, and Blake says I can't retire, so well, I'm gonna have to figure that one out. I may have to get one of those she sheds out back, you know, that I can go to. So, which way is the needle moving? Are you getting worse or better? Uh, I think I'm getting better. Yesterday was a lot of um, uh, burning in the throat, and that sort of thing, and that's kind of uh, gone away. I, I definitely think it's better today. I'm on the I'm on the mend, so to speak. Well, that's good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, our first question is from Dash, who has a battery issue that sparked a question. Go ahead, Dash. Hello, Colleen, Mike, and Paul. Thanks uh, for having me on. I, uh, not a maintenance uh, type, but so I get a lot out of the podcast, so appreciate the opportunity. I have a, a 1955 uh, Beach T34 that we bought uh, this year, 24-volt electric system. And a couple of questions on the battery. The airplane has two 12-volt batteries wired in series instead of a single 24-volt. And the first question is, what are the advantages, disadvantages of this setup with two 12s? And secondly, how would I trickle charge these? Uh, a 12-volt charger and charge them separately or a 24-volt charger and charge them together? Man, I have a lot of experience with dual batteries, but... Mine was on uh, an MGB that I had years ago with two six-volt batteries, an electrical system designed by Lucas, the Prince of Darkness. Prince of Darkness. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll I'll jump into the first one just for grins, having so much experience with that sort of thing. First is you have two batteries to purchase when they go bad, so it's going to be twice the cost. And you have extra connections in the system. This is always a problem in the MG. But it it duplicates in airplanes as well. Anytime you have a connection in an electrical system, you have uh, resistance loss, you have potential loose connections. There's just trouble there, even dissimilar metal issues, that sort of thing. So if you can eliminate some connections, if you can go to a single 20-volt battery, I think that would be an improvement. It would probably weigh less as well. I don't know what the... I'm not a, a T34 guy, so I don't know what that modification entails. But uh, one battery is going to be simpler to maintain, less costly to maintain. The downside of a single battery could be, and I don't know the model number of your batteries and all that, but two 12 volts in series can push out a lot of current. Hmm. So your current's going to be much higher or possibly much higher, depending on the batteries. Uh, than a single 24-volt. But, I mean, you put your giant, big old, you know, 24-volt truck battery in there, might do the same. Why Why do the two in series uh, provide more current? Just because they're typically larger capacity batteries. Okay. For the, for the size they are. If you had, I mean, you, you think about the physical size of a typical 24-volt battery. It's not much bigger than a 12-volt. But if you stack two 12-volt batteries together, there's just a lot there's a lot more plates, just a lot more current capacity because each each 12 volt battery could probably start the engine if it had a 12 volt starter. Paul, I'm I have to tell you, I, I'm just totally shocked at, at at this discussion. Oh no, I, I'm I'm just <laughs> flabbergasted that all these words just came out of your mouth. 
Oh, no. Uh, you disagree? The, the, the last time I looked, a T-34 was a certificated aircraft. You can't just, like, uh, do stuff like that. Oh, And, well, and converting a 212s to a 24-volt battery, <laughs> I, I hate to say it. But that's simple uh, math, But I, 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 I believe that that would qualify as a major alteration. And so you'd have to have approved data for it. There'd have to be an FCC well, to do that. There may be one. So yeah, he, he well, there may it. be one, but that but you should have started didn't your say conversation that. <laughs> with that. Oh. Like, if there was an STC, yeah. <laughs> then I might recommend, you know, it's kind of like saying, well, it's got a generator. You really want to put an alternator on it. But you can't just slap an alternator on. You got to have you got to have an approval basis to do that. So, Dash, uh, let me, is let me there an STC uh, for this? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I believe, I don't know this to be sure, but I believe the STC is for the 12s. I think the airplane originally had a 24-volt signal. Oh, oh, okay. oh well, there you, you go. Then you can, then you can un-STC the STC. Man. If you want. Thanks for bailing me out here, Dash. That was getting serious. <laughs> that was a close one, Paul. Oh, <laughs> Man. Um, to, to address your, your question about trickle charging and all of that stuff, I, I think the easiest way to think of this is a 24-volt battery is just... Two twelves in series. That's that's what it is. I mean, if you if you buy, I, I just happened to have yesterday put a new Gil G two forty six twenty four volt battery in my Cessna three ten, and it's I mean it's just two twelves in series. Actually, more to be more accurate about it, it's twelve three volt batteries yeah. in in series because that's right. what that's what it's these lead acid now. cells yeah. are. <laughs> And uh, a 24-volt battery just has, you know, twice as many caps and twice as many cells, and they're all hooked up in series internal to the battery. So you can can treat your 212s in series as if they were a 24, and you would charge them with a a 24-volt charger. I I have a, um, uh, what it's called a battery minder, which is one of those smart microprocessor-controlled chargers. And I I added a... uh, a jack they sell a kit that you can where you can mount a jack on the airplane so that it, it's it takes you about 10 seconds when you put the airplane in the hangar to plug in the trickle charger and have it sit there on there all the time keeping the batteries topped off okay so there would be and i've seen this at my local airport there'd be like a y a 24 volt charger with a y with two sets of clips for each battery no no just no. absolutely not no if you if you if you ever did something like that, you would be a big giant spark. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah bad you news. only want to hook the clips up to one of the batteries. No, no one positive no. and one negative on opposite batteries. But it's got to be a twenty-four volt battery. Yeah, right. Uh, I mean, a twenty-four volt charger. Charger. Yeah, you treat the batteries as if they're one battery. Take the positive from one battery and the negative from the other battery, and clip your your charger to that. Right. There, there's a, a short, stout cable that connects. The, the positive terminal on one battery, the negative terminal on the other battery. You don't want to ever connect anything to that. Nothing. Yeah, never. <laughs> Just pretend they're not there. Which yeah, the is, gang is, between the two. Yeah. Is, is, what, is what is the case when you buy a 24-volt battery. So the that, open that terminals, is, the two yeah. open terminals, yeah, that go into the airplane, the starter solenoid and the ground on the aircraft. Those exactly. are the ones that you... Yeah. If you do the want to charge them with a 12-volt charger, you can do that, but you have to... Disconnect. Disconnect them. Yeah, that makes sense. And then, uh, go ahead. I'm curious when they, if, if this was an STC to convert the 24 to 12s, how did they make room for the two 12s? How did they, how did they make 
how they manage to fit well, two battery boxes in there. I wonder if... <laughs> yeah. He just bought this plane. <laughs> I, well, I, I don't know what the original, you know, Air Force version looked like, obviously. Mm-hmm. But uh, most of the T-34s I see flying, there are a couple of shops that do these conversions. It's a slide-out tray. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, I've never seen an actual 24-volt battery, so size-wise, I don't know how and it compares. Are, are these two batteries mounted against the firewall the way they would be? No, they're, they're behind the firewall, kind of in a slide-out tray on the right side of the fuselage just just in front and uh-huh. below the front canopy mm-hmm. i see mm-hmm. and lastly if i could i had a mechanic at local airport say i fly the airplane about every week if not every other week three or four times a month and i had a, a mechanic at the, the airport say you don't want to trickle charge it all the time that could actually decrease your battery life which confused me because I'm in the no. habit of always plugging it in uh, when I'm putting it in. I, I just happened to, as I was putting this new battery in my airplane, I did something that is very unusual for me. I read, <laughs> read the instructions. And they made a point of saying, you know, anytime you're not flying the airplane actively, it should be on a trickle charger. Yeah. That's what I do. Yep. But be sure it's actually a trickle charger. Just a standard charger plugged into it all the time is not the same thing. A battery minder yeah. that's designed for it is very good. So it's yeah. a self-regulated charger, so it won't overcharge the battery. And and it's not the charger that you're going to use when you leave the master on and the batteries are dead. It's not going to bring them back to life. Then you have to go get a true-to-life charger. Well, it, it actually will, Paul. It just, you you have can, to be it's, very it's done it, it for me. Yeah, it takes a while. And it, it has a maximum, I think that my battery Two minder amps. is a maximum for about three, I think, amps. Yeah, uh, it'll take a long, my, long time other charger which is a 10 amp charger so if you're you know if you if you leave it you know 18 hours or so it'll charge the battery back up and going back to your question about two versus one and why would you do that i did find one advantage of having two 12 volt batteries according to the the writer who i teach electrical theory and i've got a text on this and uh, he said that it's nice because you can like replace one at a time like one year you could replace one battery and then two years later replace the other one so you're revolving fresh batteries into your setup the entire time i still agree with paul that i don't like the extra connections that could cause problems but if you do buy a charger if you bought a 12 volt charger and charged each battery separately you always were no i'm sorry i would recommend buying the 28 volt charger because that you can charge the two batteries together, or if you ever go back to the single 28 volt, you're all set up with that battery reminder. So oh, that yeah. gives you the flexibility. Right. Okay, great. Well, thanks for the information. I appreciate it. Our next question is from Danny, who's hoping for the best, but fearing for the worst on his oil leak. Go ahead, Danny. Hi, guys. Uh, thanks for having me on. I have an oily windshield that's. <laughs> getting more and more annoying. And uh, the background is we have an a, uh, A36 with a 520 engine that's t- uh, 2,200 hours old. But uh, recently at the ABS clinic, uh, it uh, was uh, boroscoped and everything checked out great. But we've looked into the oil leak and the best we can tell, it's coming from the crankcase Probably little bits uh, seeping out between the the, uh, the top seam, and 
since I worship on the altar of Mike Bush, I'm reluctant <laughs> to get this engine That sounds overhauled. terrible. <laughs> that does sound really bad. <laughs> so what do you guys think? So have you replaced the prop seal? Yeah. We have looked. We've asked our, our AMP to look at it several times, and uh, but we have not replaced it. Well, so here's a, a couple of thoughts. One is, I would definitely not pull an engine just because you think there's a little uh, oil smattering on the windshield. It sounds like there's a lot of troubleshooting that needs to be done. So one of the first things, and this is kind of a pain on a Bonanza because the way the cowling is built, but... I would clean the airplane, clean the engine very thoroughly, extremely thoroughly, get it very dry, and go run the engine for some short period of time, maybe one trip around the pattern. And then you get a black light with the yellow glasses. You can pick up one of these kits at AutoZone or something, and it's a little flashlight and yellow glasses you put on. And any oil leak or any uh, certain type of liquids that are coming out of the engine will just show up. They're just fluorescent. It's really amazing. Actually, you want to check this. You want to look at it before you run the engine to make sure it's all perfectly clean. And that'll give you an idea of where the oil is coming from. I would venture a guess it's not coming from the case halves. More than likely, it's coming from the crankshaft seal. Yeah. Oh, that was just exactly my reaction, Paul, when when I heard the question. It, It seemed to me that that if oil was leaking from the crankcase, it would not wind up on the windshield. The airflow just doesn't go that way. There is reverse airflow, but it's not that extreme. And I, I would agree the crankshaft was the first place I thought. Yeah. And the the crankshaft seal uh, is not that hard to change, but there are some uh, rules. That's not the right. I would never say rules. Procedures. Procedures, <laughs> yes. There are some proper procedures that include conditioning the crankshaft. Uh, you don't just pop a seal out and put the seal back in. There, there's some uh, prep work that gets done on the crankshaft to make sure that it seals properly. You do have to pull the propeller off. So this is a probably a three to four hour job tops, but more than likely it's gonna be that crankshaft seal. And you get to clean the sludge while you're in there. You get to clean this crankshaft My sludge. favorite thing, amazingly. But there, there, are, there are some other possibilities too. Um, the, 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 you know, the O-ring that that seals the propeller to the flange. Absolutely, it's, it's quite possible that oil could be coming out there, and not at the crankshaft seal, but a little forward of that. Yeah, the more forward the oil is leaking, the more likely it's going to be going to wind up in the right. windshield. And when you have the prop off, you're going to want to change that seal anyway because it's old and it's flat. And it's a it's a really expensive O-ring. I think they're like eight bucks or something. Well, since so, I'm in a partnership, I think we could uh, round up the money. You could split that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, that's kind of a two birds at a time uh, kind of deal up there in the front. But that's definitely the place to start. And and I would I would definitely not recommend talcum powder on the engine or developer. I've seen people say that, you know, completely cover your engine with talcum powder and then run it to look for that leak. I like Paul's idea much better. Wow. I used to use the talcum powder thing all the time. Well, not talcum powder, developer. It's a mess. Well, it is a mess. I've used localized developer and then it stayed there for the rest of the engine's life. I don't recommend that. (laughs) (laughs) Couldn't get it off. And cleaning the engine, just some sort of 
mild solvent like uh, mineral spirits. Mineral spirits or yeah, yeah Stoddard, Stoddard solvent. Stoddard solvent. Which I think you can get. I think is the same. I don't know who the Stoddard guy is, but he's making a lot <laughs> I, of I hear he gets a commission. <laughs> you and you can get us. I, I have a sprayer that connects to my um, air compressor that you stick the hose into the can and just spray the engine down, and then you can you know turn the the liquid off and just blow it, and it cleans it up pretty well. And and follow really good safety precautions. That stuff is flammable. Don't spray it on a really hot engine. That's a really bad idea. Uh, but don't, you do don't, need... don't do don't do this in your hangar. Do it in yeah, somebody else's hangar. Do somebody... <laughs> don't don't try this at home, as they say. Right. I don't know what's special <laughs> about home, but and you you do have to get it dry. So if you're whatever solvent you're using, it does have to be totally dry. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to find that that leak. It'll the leak will find the whatever liquid you cleaned with, and it'll just merge with it, and it'll be almost impossible to find. Okay. So that's that's good news. That should be good news for you, Paul. Yeah. Uh, all right. Fingers crossed. I'll, I'll do what you say, and uh, hopefully that's the problem, and we can keep flying this engine for many hundred hours. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Well, I don't know about that, but this isn't a reason to pull the engine, for sure. Good enough. <laughs> Uh, right. you no, know, if if you were if you were having an oil leak from the from the top seam of your crankcase, there'd be all kinds of oil on the on the magnetos on the vertical baffle that, that yeah that, that, the that, back that, baffle exactly. I mean, if, if, if all that stuff would be dripping with oil, I I, I really don't think that's where very likely where the problem is. Okay, so the so if that were the case, then the the whole front of the firewall would be dripping with oil. Well, it might not get back there. It would be inside the baffling area on top of the engine. Yeah. Yeah. And under the engine. It yeah. Would... Drip down. Yeah. Got it. Not on your windshield. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll get the black light and uh... the black light special. Oh, it's a blue light special. <laughs> black light. <laughs> like Pink Floyd. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> <That's great. laughs> All right, Danny. <laughs> well, you, you have you have some homework assignment, so uh, we, we hope it works out well. If anything but pulling the engine is okay by me. There, there you go. go. That's, yeah, that's thank good. you. All right. So long. Our next question is from Chris, who is doing the overhaul reman dance. Go ahead, Chris. Hi, thank you for inviting me onto the program. And I'm kind of curious about when I uh, have to do an overhaul, if I should risk an overhaul on uh, my engine, which is over 50 years old, or do I go with a rebuilt engine? I have a 0540 and a Piper Cherokee 6 from 1970. It was last overhauled in 1985, four years before I was born. and uh, I've put a lot of time on the engine airplane yet. I'm doing all the usual things, condition monitoring and the like. So uh, I'm not overhauling the engine right now. And I'm really trying to figure out whether I should go for the overhaul or the rebuilt options. As I understand it right now, rebuilt engines are six months or even more now for weight. But, and possibly an overhaul may go quicker. Uh, Money-wise, uh, rebuilds have gone up even more. Uh, always some, you know, six, eight. $10,000 price difference, and uh, there's some issue there. The biggest thing, I think, is materials. Is As I understand it, a rebuilt engine, you're going to get a case that's at least 15 years newer. you got a modern lifters and a wide-deck flange that's supposedly better. And I'm trying to figure out if there's enough reasons to 
justify going for a, for a rebuild simply based on the fact I'm getting a crankcase that's at least 15 years younger, if if not even more. Although I've heard people complain that um, some of the older narrow deck compl- cases from Lycoming are actually better than modern cases because of, I guess, metallurgy and metal and stuff like that. So that's my question. Do I go for the overhaul and or uh, risk an overhaul on a 50-year-old engine, or do I go with a, a new, in quotes, uh, rebuilt? Well, the way I'm looking at it is you've got, at your current rate of flying, you have about 17 years to go before you get anywhere close to an overhaul. So maybe, <laughs> I'm not the mathematician that Mike is, but I'm thinking surely in 17 years, they're going to be something even better. I don't know, drop-in batteries and electric motor or maybe, uh, you know, compression ignition or something. Yeah, I, I, my question is, you know, as Chris was saying this, is, well, why are you even thinking about this subject right now? Um, th- this is, I think, the worst time I can ever remember to do anything to an engine. Yeah. We're seeing engines that are that are basically trapped in field overhaul shops just because they can't get parts. So I'm, I'm not confident that a field overhaul would go any faster. The factory reman, uh, factory rebuilt engine wait times are, as you said, way, way out there, four to six months is what we're hearing. I'm also hearing, and I, I can't really substantiate this, but I'm hearing anecdotal stories of miserable quality assurance of, of engines coming out of Lycoming right now and lots of engines getting sent back there under warranty because they, they did something wrong when they built them. This is just like a horrible time to do anything to an engine. So, we, you know, our, our advice to, to anybody that's thinking about it is unless, you know, unless there's an absolutely compelling reason to open up the engine, just keep on trucking and wait for these supply chain issues. And I mean, it's a combination of, of all sorts of things. Uh, there, there are obviously terrible supply chain problems going on right now, but there's also this, um, what do they call it? The great resignation where people don't want to go back <laughs> to work. And so all of the shops that, I mean, when you, when you overhaul an engine, it, it doesn't just involve an overhaul shop. It involves all sorts of subsidiary shops, the guys that, you know, like Divco that do casework and the guys that, you know, and and they're all short on personnel, like everybody. No, you know, no. Everybody's trying to hire, and nobody's applying for jobs. So, but Chris is not just asking, "Should I do it now?" I don't think he's saying that. Uh, although he did say how old his engine is, he's asking, "Should I go rebuilt or overhaul?" I've always overhauled my engines, and I've been very happy with that. I think that people are risk averse, and they feel that a rebuilt engine is just better, but. I'm perfectly happy with the overhauled engine, and I would not hesitate to do that again. I mean, the, the general advice that, that, that I've given people over the years, and, and probably have to modify this a little bit right now because we're dealing in, in peculiar times, is that you go the option, the rebuilt option, for one of two reasons. Either your engine has a known problem that would involve a large upcharge if it was a field overhaul. Or, I mean, you know, for example, your engine threw a rod through the side of the case, you know, the factory will probably give you a lot more core credit for something like that than, than, than a a field overhaul shop is going to. Um, The other reason, which really doesn't apply right now is 
you, you want to minimize downtime. So you, you don't, instead of sending your engine, it used to be you send your engine out for overhaul, you, you would expect to be down for, for about 60 days, roughly. And uh, if you, you know, bought a rebuilt engine, you, you could be down for two weeks because you just keep flying until the rebuilt engine shows up. And then you pop the old engine out, pop the new one in, and you got 60 days or something to return the old one back to the factory. None of that applies anymore, of course. The whole calculus is completely different right now because this is very ab- abnormal time. Well, did that help, Chris? <laughs> yeah. uh, I think so. I mean, I, I wasn't planning on overhauling anytime soon, but it's stuff in the radar. It's eighteen hundred hours on the engine, and and uh, it's bigger. The thing is the age, right? That this oil's leaking through the seams, and so time will eventually have it come. But just trying to figure out what the best course is. Yeah, oh, that's a, oil that's leaks a are not issue. a problem. Yeah, it's yeah. just messy. Oil is cheap. <laughs> oil yeah, is as, cheap. As as as, as a wise. Uh, owner of a of a propeller overhaul shop uh, advised me once just carry a rag <laughs> <laughs> kitty litter <laughs> kitty litter, kitty litter. Yeah. <laughs> no i would milk that as long as i could especially in this uh, yeah. well i'm so. i'm you know i wouldn't be surprised if it takes a year before things get back to what we used to think is normal with regard to the supply of of engines and parts and stuff like that this this is not this is a problem that isn't going to get better really quickly. Well, Chris, thank you for calling. It was an interesting question. Thank you. Take yeah. care. Our next question is from uh, Mahesh, who doesn't know what he doesn't know, which sounds like something an attorney would say when he's investigating something. But anyway, welcome to the show, Mahesh. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. So I have a fairly general question, but I'm just going to use myself as an example to illustrate the question. So I fly a 2014 Cirrus uh, SR22 Turbo. I spend a fair bit of time working on and learning pilot-related stuff. And by pilot-related stuff, I mean you know reading or watching videos on how better to fly instrument procedures or weather or accident analyses or whatever, stuff that I think will make me a better, more proficient pilot. So, And there's a lot of educational material available on that kind of stuff. But where I find I'm woefully... Uh, you know, uh, where I have a woeful lack of knowledge is on the mechanics of my plane. And so I really would like to learn more about the mechanics of my plane. And by that, I mean stuff like power plant or radionics or the other systems. But the problem is I'm probably one of the most uh, mechanically unskilled persons on the planet. Well, I, th- I think there's this guy named Paul New that teaches seminars on Cirruses. Isn't that true, Paul? Well, you know, I was going to mention there's this. I didn't yeah, know. yeah, he really does. Oh, uh, <laughs> well, so there's a, you've heard of COPA, I assume. Yes, I, uh, I am yep. a member of COPA, yeah. Okay, have you ever attended a CPPP? Yes, I, I will, I've attended one. I've been meaning to attend more, but COVID kind of got in the way. Right. Well, when you go to a CPPP, either myself or Roger Whittier teach the uh, the technical classes, the ownership classes and the maintenance-related classes. And you can get some phenomenal information there specific to Cirrus, not generic airplane stuff, but specific to Cirrus. And we do, oh, depending on the year, we'll do everything from um, 
boroscoping to engine data analysis to systems. We have a systems class that we're doing now, which is really good. Um, and uh, leaning procedures. Roger has one on leaning that's just wonderful. So depending on where you go in the country, if you go to one of the classes on the left coast, it's probably going to be Roger. If you go to the classes that are more to the the right side of the Mississippi, uh, I'll be doing those classes. But those are great places. In addition to that, so you probably don't need to know how to borescope an engine, but what you can learn is what your mechanic is looking for. So when your mechanic says, oh, I see this, you'll have an idea of what this is and how important that is or how urgent it is. And then non-Sarah specific, I hear there's some really good books and, yeah, and, yeah. and <laughs> webinars out there. Wow. So. <laughs> <laughs> that was smooth, I, I, Mike. I, that was really smooth. Yeah. <laughs> Go worship at that altar. <laughs> I've spent a lot of time, Mike, watching your uh, seminars on uh, magnetos and how they can go bad. That, but truth in, in all seriousness with Mike does have a, a huge volume of webinars. There's, a, there's, there's about 140 of them now, right? Yeah. And they are, they're wonderful for mechanics. I mean, some of them are very pilot-oriented, but the vast majority of them uh, are excellent for mechanics, and I recommend them frequently, not only to just mechanics in general, but to the mechanics in my shop. There are wonderful ways to save me the time of explaining things. Just, just go watch Mike, and when you get done, then we can talk. I don't know... Um how, what kind of relationship you have with your AMP who does your inspections, but if you could get in and just do the walk around with him when he's got everything opened up, you could, I mean, if he's willing to let you tag along, man, you can learn a lot in a day. Uh, it, that would be very valuable. Even better, a, an owner assisted or at least owner observed annual yeah, yeah. <laughs> would, is, is an extremely, you know, valuable thing. I don't, I don't think there's any way of uh, getting to know your airplane better than to participate in an annual inspection where they basically open everything up and look at everything. And Not all shops let you do that. Yeah. yeah I, I, well, I, I, I go to a Cirrus service center and he, you know, I've gone to him even before I had this Cirrus uh, and he's a great guy, but, and I've never had the time to do it, but now I do. Uh, oh. And so I asked him whether I could, and he said his insurance guys, uh, Put the kibosh on, on. Oh, that's the that's the oh, oldest yeah. story in the book. That's a yeah. lie, by the way. But they always say that if they want to keep you out of their hangar, they always blame yeah. it on their insurance. Yeah. I mean, be good about letting me stay, letting me wander around in there. But we we only say that to certain customers, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> I think those are all great suggestions. I I will uh, I will start hunting those down. Thank you. I do appreciate okay. that. I all right, appreciate Ash, the thank you for the call. Bye bye. Bye bye. Our next question is from Sebastian and Tim, who are partners in a Murphy Super Rebel. They're both wondering if too much information is a bad thing. Go ahead, you guys. What do you got? Um, Tim has built a beautiful uh, Super Rebel. If, if you don't know what that is, it's, it's basically an amateur built Cessna 180. Yeah. But it wanders. As we're, we're cruising along nicely, uh, we get the RPM just wanders a little bit, 35, 40 RPM sometimes. 
in Canada, if you, you learn to fly a turboprop, you spend all your time thinking about is the propeller overspeed or underspeed and, and you know, which, which little thing is doing what. But I've never had one of these governors apart. I don't know how they work inside. It's, it's a Dynan digital engine monitor. So, you know, maybe, maybe on an analog gauge, we wouldn't even see the difference here. On this You'd thing. hear it probably. <laughs> well, yes, it is, it is noticeable. I mean, you, you can see it on the gauge. You can hear a little bit of wonder. You can easily see it in, in the data when you, when you upload it. But I don't know, is, is that much wonder a problem? And if it is, we have no idea where to start to know where the problem is. Well, it's interesting you bring that up. I remember the first digital tachometer I installed was a, was a Horizon P1000, and it read the RPM down to single digits. My dad hated it because it fluctuated all the time, up and down and up and down. No change to the engine. It's the same engine as before and the same nice, stable RPM as before. And that was kind of the first time we realized how much these engines just changed in just normal flight, just up and down all the time, plus or minus, oh, five to 10 RPM is really common to the point that almost all of the modern engine monitors blank out the single digit. It'll be set at zero all the time just to eliminate some of that irritation. I don't know that yours is that way, but you think about on the analog gauge, the needle width is 50 RPM. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I think I think on the on the JPI monitors, it's a, it's a configurable option as to whether you want it to to the nearest unit or the or the nearest ten. Uh, Paul, I, I have a question. You might know the answer to. Uh, I know on on Continentals when we have issues involving prop regulation, one of the things that we do is a transfer collar test where you do essentially do a compression test of the transfer collar. Right. Exactly. Is there a similar procedure for Lycomings? It picks up oil from the back of the engine. I'm not sure where the, the uh, prop governor is on this one, but whether it's back or front, it just taps it uh, from the oil system and pumps it into the crankshaft. And it's part of the nose bearing, which is a double set bearing. Uh, in the front of the engine, so it's it's not the same system at all. They don't don't have those kind of troubles. The, I mean, the, the governor's been it's on the front of the engine. It's been removed, okay. and and actually, it's it's a new. The governor itself is is a new governor. So, do you have the the, the hard line from the back of the engine to the front, or is it a flexible no. hose? There's no hose. No hose at all. Okay. No. All right. Not real familiar with this specific model engine. So, uh, I mean, that sounds. Pretty much like the Continental setup, where there's a governor pad on the on the side right. of the engine near it's on the, the nose. Front. Yeah, but it doesn't and, have and, that collar like you're well, thinking. You're, well, you're basically saying that the front, the 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 extended front uh, bearing, main mm-hmm. bearing, kind of doubles as a transfer collar because right, right. Lycoming does publish some sort of leak test, but okay. I th- I think that's internal to the governor, and again. The, the, the governor was sent out and, and is a new governor. No, it, 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 if Lycoming publishes a leak test, I, I doubt it, that it has anything to do with the governor. I, I suspect that it, it would be an analog to the to the Continental's leak test where you're injecting air into the port on the governor pad that w- where the governor would normally pump high-pressure oil to get, uh, to get into the prop uh, to see how leaky that transfer area is. Oh, because because you you've got a you know you've got a, a prop governor that's fixed that that has to get high pressure oil into a 
in, into the propeller, which is rotating. And so there has to be sort of the hydraulic equivalent of a slip ring, <laughs> I guess you'd say, to, to get that done. You all are pretty convinced that this is an internal problem and not something external. Because um, I did read that uh, the connection of the rod end at the um, at the governor, if it's loose or, or not fixed, it could cause like a hysteresis and and... You could see, you know, because the governor is basically using oil pressure against a spring, right? And it's moving back and forth. And so if you had something else that was allowing it to vary, it could kind of go into the cyclic. That motion. could easily be it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just easy to check. How's that? <laughs> what? You, you talk, you're talking about the security of the rod end right yes. into the bell crank? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> if the cable was flexing anywhere in there. Anywhere. Yeah, the well, cable... There's a there's a spring on the prop governor that should be uh, rotating the the lever toward low pitch or high RPM. And if that spring is not in place as well, then things can move back and forth. It should be holding tension on this connector that may or may not be tight. Uh, But, yeah, that's a really good, easy thing to check. Also, what is your your engine oil pressure? Uh, 70. we've, We've played with it a little bit. And and when it gets cold, then we change oil and stuff. But it's it's anywhere from uh, in in cruise once it's up its temperature, it's anywhere from seventy to eighty. That's okay. about where it ought to be. Yeah, yeah, eighty's really good at cruise RPM and one hundred and eighty degrees. Yeah, we we have a if if we if we keep it at eighty, uh, we sometimes in the colder weather run into a, a, a over pressure on, on startup situation. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's going to happen just because it's cold preheat. Yeah. And the and the, and you're not seeing you're not seeing oil pressure fluctuations on the gates. Not at all. Okay. Yeah. It's rock steady. Is there anything in the propeller that could be? I mean, we we listened to your your uh, uh, webinar the other day, Mike, on propeller overhauls. It made a, a lot of sense. We're in Canada. We have that ten year rule where it's mandatory, except that an amateur built in Canada, it's not mandatory. Mm-hmm. But the propeller sat there a long time. Well, there's not much in a propeller that would deteriorate just from sitting other than uh, seals. And in particular, I'm thinking about the, you know, the piston in the dome of the prop that can, that, that actually uh, controls the, R, the, the RPM. It has an O-ring around it that, that it's kind of like it's equivalent to a piston ring that, that seals it to the, to the cylinder of, of the dome. And I suppose if that O-ring was all, dried out and stuff that 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 you could you could have uh oil leakage uh there but there 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 aren't a lot of things in the in the propeller that that could uh, that could cause that well thank thank you very much that that's a few ideas we can go look at and tackle this well cool enjoy that plane i i love that and it was a great question uh very interesting and um if you find out what fixes it we'd love to hear back Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Sebastian. Okay. Our next question is from Jeff, who's wondering if Continental is being a bit too conservative with its oil guidance. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Thank you very much. Um, We've got a Lancer that uh, we built and have uh, flown for about 700 hours. We've had uh, bought the engine new, uh, IO550. And uh, since then, we used uh, AeroShell 15W50. And uh, since then, I've 
red a lot and I don't believe that uh, that's the right oil for us. I'd like to switch to a Phillips 2050, but uh, Continental's got a service information letter 1904 that says you're not supposed to change oil types until uh, next overhaul. Is there a reason for that or should I change? There's absolutely no reason for it whatsoever. Uh, Continental introduced this crazy thing, what, maybe a year ago? And who on earth came up with that? I have absolutely no idea. The oil companies, maybe. But it 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 it's it it was it it came out of nowhere, and it and it there's no there's no real valid uh, technical basis uh, for that, and uh, you know you can switch from any approved oil to any other approved oil anytime, and nothing that's going to happen. So just don't worry about it. <laughs> On the Aeroshell website, I found this years and years ago when this topic comes up from time to time. And I don't remember if it's on the front page. I don't know if it's there now, but they stated very clearly on their website that you can mix and match oils in between oil changes. doesn't matter. Synthetic, partial synthetics. Uh, well, not synthetics, but partial synthetics, mineral oils, uh, multi-viscosity, single viscosity, all those, you know, if you need to add a quart of uh, Phillips to your engine that's running Aeroshell, then that's what you need to do. And apparently it's not a problem. It's not, it's not a problem. The only problem in switching wells is, is that it, it, it tends to look funny on your oil analysis. So you, you need yeah. to get, get used to the, to the, to the changes. But, and I mean, I can always, tell from looking at oil analysis uh, pretty much what kind of oil somebody's running and whether they're putting cam guard in it or not, because you can see all of that show up in the oil analysis. But And actually, in cold weather, don't you usually switch to a different viscosity than in the summer when, you're, when you have extremes, unless you're running the multi-viscosity oil? So, I mean, people normally change oils throughout the year when they have extremes yeah. like that. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense at all. Go, go go change to to your uh, Phillips XC with cam guard in peace and yeah <laughs> cool. and, and and our and our blessings our blessing go in peace <laughs> next next uh, next oil change I'll do that and if I have any problems I'll just tell Continental that you guys said it was okay oh yeah, oh, yeah. Just, they'll use, love that use yeah. Mike's name <laughs> yeah use yeah Mike 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 that Mike guy <laughs> that Mike guy I'll have to I'll have to I'll have to mail you my uh, our, our warranty disclaimer the, <laughs> the podcast warranty disclaimer <laughs> thank you all right Jeff thanks, thanks for Jeff. coming on the show we enjoyed the question. All right. Have a good day. Thank you. Fly fast. Yeah, yes. will do. Mm -hmm. Bye. Our next question is from Steve, who has wings that are weeping. Go ahead, Steve. Yeah. Hi, guys. I bought a uh, Piper Lance in 2018, hoping to get my need to get back into aviation out of my system. Um, unfortunately, if you're an alcoholic, you don't give you more alcohol to solve your problems. <laughs> <laughs> so as you can tell by my uniform, um, it got worse and now I'm flying for a living, making a whole lot of money, but having a great time. Okay. Anyway, the uh, Piper, as you probably know, has a um, aluminum fuel tank that's riveted. And then uh, I guess they use ProSeal or something like that in there to keep the to, to keep it from leaking. And uh, these things aren't getting any younger. 
Mine's uh, 78. And I have a few rivets here and there that are, uh, they're not dripping, but after if I, you know, one of them's on the top and after if I fill the fuel tank, I'll have a little of the blue dye after a flight on it. And then also another one is on the bottom and it'll, it'll show a little blue dye after a flight as well. Uh, I talked to my A&P, and his solution was to take the tanks out, send them to a place, and have them completely ah. re Which is, uh, ah. yeah. well, he, he didn't say to do it right now. Oh, so good. With okay. the fit, you know, and, and you know, until it uh, is dripping and catches fire, I'm not going to spend that kind of money. Oh. <laughs> it's like amputation <laughs> is the solution. <laughs> Let, let's do it before the fire event. Without yeah. tearing everything apart and uh, basically building new tanks. So that's well, what I, my question was. Well, so in the Piper Manual and also in um, the FAA Advisory Circulars, there's a, a really nice chart that shows you the difference between the various kinds of leaks, weeps, and seeps, and well, there's something else anyway. The running leak is the bad one. The running leak <laughs> is a bad one, yeah. The, the gusher. <laughs> the gusher, yeah. If you don't, if you don't see avgas wet and running down, like, like liquid running down the tank or dripping out of the tank, then it can go on like that for a long time, provided it's exposed. If it's leaking inside the wing, in other words, uh, like your uh, fuel sending unit gasket can sometimes leak because that those fumes will be contained inside the structure of the wing, which means it can get to a, a point where it can ignite. You don't want that. But if it's just a little stain on the outside, as long as you don't mind the, the damage to the paint, it's not a big deal. But fortunately, on a Lance or all the, I won't say all the Pipers, all the Cherokee versions of the Pipers, the Senecas, the Saratogas, the Lance, the Cherokees, uh, those, the tanks are actually removable. And it's not a terrible job to remove those tanks from the airplane. It is a pain to reseal them. You do have to derivet because they don't have a hole big enough to get your arm in and seal those. But you can make a hole, but then you have to get other engineer-type people involved. Yeah, there's a yeah. couple places I've seen that do it. I think it's about $3,000 a tank. Yeah. So. <laughs> That's a lot. Wow. You know, yeah. Yeah. As Way I recall, back. Paul, you're not a big fan of sloshing sealers, correct? Well, I, I was just about to say, way back when, there used to be a sloshing sealer, and you'd just you'd pour, I don't know, a gallon or so of this stuff in the tank, and then just rotate it around, and it would it would coat the entire inside of the tank. And you know, the concept was great. The problem was it didn't stick real well. So after it had been inside the tank, it would start flaking off, and it would get in your fuel system, and it would clog up the lines, and... It was a big hooty dude, and we all had to get rid of tanks, or not get rid of tanks, but clean all that out. Gosh, that was back in the sixties or seventies. That was uh, those. That was big in, in the in the Mooney communities where they you, yeah. you can't you can't remove the tanks unless you yeah. take off the wings and send them in. So, but anyway, getting getting back to what Paul was saying earlier, there's there's a formal classification of leaks in uh, in AC forty three thirteen, and. It's basically it's classified uh, by by wiping off the fuel and then seeing how quickly it reappears, <laughs> and you know the 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 most benign kind of leak is the one that doesn't reappear until the next day, and the the worst kind is is the the kind that 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 drip drip drips into a bucket while you're watching it. 
Oh yeah, and, and that that's <laughs> called a running leak. And if it's a running leak, you're you're required to repair it. That's um, when you come out after a month and you're like, I wonder how much fuel I have. Oh, it's yeah. empty. <laughs> it's empty. Where did but it go? If, if Where did just, it go? If it's just one of these things that's you, you're seeing a little blue stain and you 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 wipe it away and then then you see it the next day. That's the most benign kind of leak, and those are are, are acceptable leaks. Now. I, I did read about wet wing, weeping wet wing tank repair. And uh, there were several shops that do this procedure where they um, draw a vacuum in an empty tank and then pull something into the rivets and supposedly that seals it. Um, and I don't know about the success of that, but that's several places use uh, that. Well, there have been a lot of attempts uh, to do that. We've even tried, you can drill a rivet out and set a new rivet. The problem is you have to somehow get your hand inside to buck the rivet. Yeah. Almost <laughs> all the manufacturers say you don't get to use blind rivets in a fuel uh, tank. So you can't just dip a Cherry Max rivet and stick it in there, although that would be a, a wonderful solution. Weld. It would yeah. work. For, JB Weld. I'll I love that you. stuff. Uh, I have seen where you take a, a blob of tank sealant and a grommet and then a flat set rivet set and pound oh. the sealant in around the rivet. <laughs> I, I have seen about 10% uh, success rate on You mean you don't buck that. the rivet, you just glue it in? Is that what you're no, saying? No, no, no. no. The, oh, you, don't, you don't remove the rivet. You, yeah, oh, the rivet's oh, okay. there. You force the sealant past this slight, slightly loose rivet. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. And you have to have, of course, very thin sealant to do that. But it's if it's not leaking bad enough to pull off the tank, it's probably not worth doing anything to it. So ProSeal pro is too thick. You have to use Amateur Seal. I mean, uh, was it Loctite makes like a thread sealant that's uh, mm. uh, fuel resistant. That doesn't, is the, mm. It doesn't get dam damaged by gasoline anyway. And it's supposed to wick into the threads. I was thinking about trying something like that, but... Anyway, it, it it sounds like the optimum strategy is to wait till it gets a whole lot worse and then bite the bullet and pull the tanks and have them. So, so you actually have to de-rivet the bottom, Paul, and, and apply ProSeal and then rivet it back up during the working time of the ProSeal. Is that the idea? Yeah, you either do the bottom or do the top. The, the places that do this usually just peel the entire skin off and clean all the old sealant off and go back together like new, which is, it, it works really well. It, it's really easy to do. You don't have to jig anything. All the all the rivet holes, you click them up, and it just goes right back exactly like it was. It's actually, in the world of structural work, it's one of the easiest, straightforward jobs you can do. It's messy. You'll run a set of clothes. There's no way around it. There's a lot of blue-painted, blue-dyed wings out there. You go look. Yeah. Yeah, if you just look around, you see them. Yeah. Yep, they're there. Cool. Okay, well, hope you get home, Steve. <laughs> yeah, all right, Steve. <laughs> Take care. Well, that's a wrap. We know a lot more about maintenance than podcasting, so we would love to hear from you. Send us your ideas on what you want us to discuss. Your questions and comments should go to podcasts at aopa.org. Fly safely and have fun, and we will see you next time. See ya. Bye, everybody. Bye.